This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Adele Lindenmeyer about her book Citizen Countess, Sophia Pania, and the Fate of Revolutionary Russia. Adele, welcome back to New Books Network. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, certainly. I am a historian of modern Russia. Uh, I've been on the faculty in the Department of History at Villanova University, right outside of Philadelphia, for a few decades now, uh, really concentrating in my research and teaching on 19th and 20th century Russia, with a particular focus on women's history. Right now, I actually have what some people say Uh, moved to the dark side. I'm now dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Villanova University. And while I don't teach anymore, I remain active in my field of scholarship, which is, as I said, modern Russian and women's history. And that's nicely encapsulated in the life of of Sofia Panina. I was wondering if you could tell us, what was it that led you to write a biography about her? I did my earlier work on the question of the development and viability of private philanthropy in Tsarist Russia. Was it possible uh, to have a a private uh, civil society not or public sphere and a civil society in an authoritarian, in fact, an absolutist uh, and autocratic political system. And in the course of doing research about the history of private charity and also public welfare, I was looking in particular for leading figures uh, who were women in the field of Russian philanthropy and civil society. And that I was looking, frankly, for somebody like a Jane Addams or a Muriel Lester in England. And I encountered Sophia Panina uh, as the founder of this really exceptional, unusual institution, a people's house in St. Petersburg, which operated from 1903 to actually the present day without her, of course. And so I discovered that she, in fact, lived the last 17 years of her life in the United States. 
died in New York City in 1956 and left her papers to Columbia University. So that's where I started. And once I began researching in her uh, uh, collection, uh, Columbia, I just became fascinated with her long and extraordinary life story. And it's one that, as you explained at the start of your book, you've been uh, researching and and studying for uh, quite a long period of time. A really long time, as a matter of fact. At first, when I started this project, I thought, well, this is easy. Uh, She left her papers to Columbia. I'm in Philadelphia. Uh, I, I can write this book based on just this collection in Columbia. But of course... The papers that she had with her in the United States in which she left to Columbia were really concerned her life after she fled Russia in 1920. And in order to put together her entire life to research her childhood, her marriage, the beginnings of her philanthropic career, her political career in the First World War and the 1917 Revolution, I had to go to Russia. I ended up making seven or eight research trips to Russia. It took a long time, partly because some of the archives I needed were still closed. And I also did research in Washington, D.C., out at Stanford University, in Paris, in London. Really, it was a detective hunt for traces of the life of this woman whose life had been interrupted by world historical events like revolution and war. Reading your book, it was surprising to me that hers was a name that I hadn't encountered. And I was thinking in particular about the point you make early on in which you, uh, you you, you posit her as being one of the most important people of the 20th century, one of the most important women of the 20th century that we've never really heard of. What did she do that was so important, and why is it that we don't really know as much about her as we do, say, a Jane Addams? Well, thank you for the question. First of all, I would argue that as we approach the 100th anniversary of uh, women's political equality in the United States, Sophia Panina stands out as one of the prime movers of women's suffrage and political equality in Russia during the revolution of 1917. I don't think it's widely known that Russia, after the fall of the Romanov dynasty in early 1917, introduced complete political equality for women and was the first major nation to introduce uh, women's suffrage before the U.S., before Great Britain, well before some of the other European countries uh, who waited, in the case of France, until after World War II. So uh, I I think understanding the different routes that countries took to uh, uh, in which women achieved the right to vote is particularly resonant right now. And Sofia Panina was in her own way a feminist and a strong advocate of women's political equality after the fall of the dynasty. Uh, and I, I elaborate on that in, in one of the chapters 
in, in which I, I document her very extensive role in revolutionary events in the Russian Revolution of 1917. And we don't know much about how women participated in the revolutionary year in Russia of 1917. In addition, she uh, moved to the forefront of the liberal political party that was in power after the fall of the monarchy and became a vice minister in that cabinet, the cabinet of the provisional government. And as such, she was the first woman in history to serve in a cabinet position. Those are just a couple of of notable achievements in her life as a woman. I also think that her her approach to philanthropy uh, is particularly interesting. Uh, It's a variant of the settlement house movement, well known in this country and in the United Kingdom. And, And yet she put her distinct stamp on how to uh, bring what she thought was enlightenment to to the working classes. Why we haven't heard about her is, I think, first and foremost, because she ended up on the losing side of the Russian Revolution. So we know about more famous women, such as Alexandra Kolontai, the Bolshevik feminist, but we and we know about the tragic uh, fate of Empress Alexandra. But that's about it in terms of knowledge of how women participated in the revolution and how it affected them. And so uh, that's why I think her life can really tell us so much about women, revolution, uh, suffrage, and political equality in the 20th century. One of the things that fascinated me as I was reading your book was your coverage of her intellectual journey in her early years in particular because you spend a uh, you, you, you spend some space talking about her uh, family background and on the surface it seems like it's it's a very unpromising uh, you know background for, for to produce someone who you know was a for her time a liberal even in in terms of women's rights are a radical what was what was her family like and 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 you know and what sort of upbringing did she have she had both a very conventional and a very nonconformist upbringing she was uh, descended from two of the wealthiest aristocratic families in imperial russia the panins and the maltsevs and these uh, her grandfathers for example were really towering figures in 19th century Russian history. They owned thousands and thousands of serfs. They were extraordinarily wealthy. They were quite different. Her paternal grandfather serving as the minister of justice for the imperial government for decades, while her maternal grandfather was sometimes known as uh, the Russian Andrew Carnegie for his extraordinary industrial complex that he developed in Russia that produced everything from crystal to uh, locomotives. And so she came from wealth, from status, from families that had a long history of distinction in serving imperial Russia and its government in important ways. But she also 
was the child of a very uh, free-spirited mother who was widowed very early and brought up her only child in a in a way that did not conform to the standards of bringing up a, a girl of the Russian aristocracy. And as I as I explain early in the book, her mother, her unconventional, rather reckless mother, and her mother's sympathies for radical causes in in the late 19th century led to a royal battle that, in fact, did involve the Russian emperor over custody between her mother and her grandmother. And the culmination of that battle was a victory by her grandmother and a and an upbringing in a very conventional, restrictive girls' school for noble girls. But the influence of her mother never weakened, and gradually, and especially after she inherited her fortune, Sophia Panina became as almost as unconventional in certain ways as her mother, but not as reckless. That, that what you described there is is the part that really fascinates me is the fact that there were, there were so many she she was in so many respects uh, swimming against the, the the tide of the time. Yes, she had her mother as this you know this remarkable uh, uh, figure, but you're. Uh, she, there, there are all these institutions that are pushing her towards this conventional lifestyle. You describe her grandparents, who, as you make it clear, were you know positively reactionaries in terms of their politics and their and their views. And then you have the, this this institution, the, the Catherine Institute, which doesn't, which is not exactly a progressive school. And yet, as you describe her, she becomes this very empowered figure, not just in terms of her wealth, but in terms of her personality. Yes, she had. Uh, she had the the freedom to operate as she wished because of the wealth that she inherited. But she also was a woman of great warmth and passion. And she was looking already from the age of 18, 19 years old, she was clearly looking for a different path than the conventional one of a a countess, a wife of an influential uh, uh, military officer, dashing young military officer. She she becomes quite disillusioned uh, around the middle to late 1890s, especially when she attends the coronation in Moscow of Nicholas and Alexandra. And, and I would just add uh, parenthetically that it was a discovery I made of more than 50 letters that she wrote to her best friend uh, in girlhood, a friend named Varvara or Varya. These were really uh, open, uh, sincere letters that gave me insight into her transition from the time she was married to the time she became uh, heir to her grandmother's fortune in the end of the 1890s. These letters gave me insight into this critical period when she was in her 20s and 
made this remarkable transition from conventional aristocratic womanhood to somebody who became known as the Red Countess for her sympathies for liberalism and the workers, working class. I'd like to talk about that marriage for just. I'd like for you to talk about that marriage for just a moment because it seems to be a, a very important set of circumstances. Uh, getting married was expected, but as you described, the the circumstances of that marriage were really uh, key to her breaking away and and being her own person. Whom did she marry, and and how did the marriage turn out? She married a man named Alexander Polovtsev. And Russian historians are very familiar with his father, who was uh, an important political figure in uh, in the reign of Alexander III, who was the father of the last Romanov czar, Nicholas. And Alexander Polovtsev, the younger, junior, as I call him in my book, was clearly considered to be pretty great catch. He was good looking. He was rich. He was well-connected. How they got together, I do not know, because she never mentions him in any published or even unpublished memoir. I only have the briefest mention of him in these letters that she wrote to her friend Varya uh, right after and during her brief marriage. The marriage only lasted, as far as I can tell, about five years. Uh, she married him in 1890. By 1895, according to the city directory for St. Petersburg, she is back living with her grandmother and she has resumed her maiden name of Panina. So I do uh, some speculation in this particular chapter about the both the origins of the marriage and the reasons for its end. And I really do not know for sure why she married him. I'm not even sure why he married her, although he seems to have been quite attracted by her wealth. And I only can speculate based on some information that I received from uh, a descendant of hers who knew both of them, uh, how the marriage ended. She never married again, although, uh, as I as I recount later in the book, she does uh, form a partnership, a life partnership, with another man during uh, the Russian Revolution and, and stays by his side until his death in Prague in 1934. She has no children. And because she's an only child, she has no other direct descendants, although she had a very large number of cousins and step-cousins. And I I hope that this book will uh, lead to me discovering more of her descendants. I I was thinking about the the role this marriage plays. It's it's almost like she's checking a box. And now that that's out of the way, she can – begin what she really wants to do, which is uh, her social work. I was wondering if you could explain uh, what was it that initially drew her to social work? How does she, uh, 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 what ideas does she bring to it? And what does she do in terms of 
in terms of trying to uh, help Russian society? Thanks for the question. She explains how she got involved in social work by an encounter that she had with a woman twice her age who was a city school teacher, a tiny little woman named Alexandra Peshachonova, who was a teacher in the equivalent of a one-room schoolhouse in St. Petersburg. This encounter took place in 1891. Sofia Panina was married by that time. She was uh, 20 years old. And she explains that it was this encounter when Alexandra Peshachonova came to her to ask for funds and help for a children's cafeteria. It was this encounter that completely changed her life. I I think uh, since she writes this 50 years later, there's some uh, very uh, nostalgic coloring that she puts on this encounter. But nevertheless, the way she recounts the evolution of her social work career is very much as the as the under the mentorship of this much older woman and they formed a partnership sophia had the money and alexandra knew the neighborhood and they started very small with services mainly uh hot meal for in the middle of the school day, but then eventually after school care in a very, very poor neighborhood, industrial neighborhood in St. Petersburg in the 1890s. Eventually, they added more and more services, Sunday readings, night classes for adults. And when Sophia's grandmother died, leaving her this vast fortune, Sophia and Alexandra were able to plan and build an institution to house all of these different activities. It was called the People's House uh, in a a district in St. Petersburg that is far from the center of the city. Tourists visit the beautiful glittering palaces and canals. You would never go to this neighborhood. But this institution was like a, they called it a crystal palace. It was It was a beacon of light in this very benighted industrial area of St. Petersburg. And it still exists today. It it still operates some of the same activities. She established a theater there. There were plays. There were movies. Uh, They still put on plays and movies today. And her philosophy was that working men and women wanted, as well as needed, entertainment and education and as a way to brighten their lives. And she wanted to give them joy as well as uh, the means such as literacy or artistic uh, realization to, to improve their lives. She wasn't interested in overthrowing the existing system, but she wanted to help Russian men and women develop into free citizens. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, what you described here sounds very similar to the settlement houses that you were seeing cropping up in uh, England and in the United States and elsewhere during this time. To what degree would you situate this as part of the settlement house movement? And to what uh, extent was uh, Panina inspired by the settlement house movement versus, say, developing this independently? I would I would argue that her institution in particular and the uh, dozens and dozens of similar institutions called people's houses that were established in Russia at about the same time were very much part of this international movement that included settlement houses in the United States and Great Britain. There were people's houses established in Italy and uh, Germany and Belgium, uh, all with similar goals, which was to provide education, entertainment, uh, and a, a respite uh, of all kinds of different kinds of assistance to, in the United States, immigrant populations in the cities, uh, in elsewhere, uh, working class populations, many of whom were recent arrivals, as in Russia, from rural areas, from the countryside. So it's part very much of, a, of an international philanthropic movement uh, of this late 19th, early 20th century period. The, the difference between Sophia Pane's institution and the People's House in general and a settlement house is that uh, in settlement houses, you had young people from the upper and middle classes actually live there and move in and form this very close connection with their poorer working class neighbors. In, in the People's House, there, Sophia Panina did not live there, whereas Jane Adams lived at Hull House, uh, nor did any of her co-workers. So it was more distant from the populations that they served. Panina herself, however, felt that her institution was unique, that it served specific needs of the population of this particular area of St. Petersburg. She visited Toynbee Hall the first settlement house in England, but she denied being influenced by Western examples, though I would disagree. So she's, uh, you know, working with, with the people's house in, in, in St. Petersburg, she's, uh, supporting it financially. Uh, for how long does this activity continue? And, and, uh, into what extent does it start changing her uh, status in, in, in society? Because I'm thinking about the transition here between her as a social activist into her as a government minister. I mean, to, to what degree is she getting renowned for this? To what degree is she uh, getting attention? To what degree is she being seen as a leading figure in terms of social reform? I, I believe that before the outbreak of World War One, she had certainly become a, a pretty familiar name in 
St. Petersburg in particular, and in, in Russian philanthropic circles in general. But she avoided the limelight. There's She didn't give interviews or write about the work that she was doing. It was World War I that completely transformed her life and her career and moved her from the realm of a local, well-known philanthropist to a national figure, first in war relief, which she became a leader in uh, war-related relief activities in Petrograd, which is the uh, what St. Petersburg was renamed after the outbreak of the war. And it was then her prominence, both as a philanthropist, but also as a leader in responding to the domestic crises that the war created that uh, propelled her into politics after the fall of the Russian autocracy in early 1917. But then she had always been, though she would deny it, she'd always been political. Uh, The work that she did with the working classes of St. Petersburg was highly politicized work. Also, her stepfather was the founder of the largest Russian liberal party, the Constitutional Democratic Party. So her her entire path really led her, in a way, to uh, taking an active political role in 1917, especially after the Bolshevik Revolution. So you have the uh, revolution taking place in 1917, as you've just mentioned, and she assumes this government role. How does she find her way to government, and what role does she serve within it? She uh, became first a one of the first uh, women uh, members of the city council of Petrograd. She entered the city council with seven other women, local figures in education and healthcare in March of 1917. Then she was elected to the central committee of this Russian Liberal Party, the Constitutional Democratic Party that her stepfather had founded. And from there, she was appointed to become assistant minister in the new Ministry of Welfare, uh, which was was just created uh, by this temporary or provisional government. So there was continuity there in the positions that she took political positions that she took first as assistant minister of welfare. And then uh, when that government fell apart and a coalition government was created, she accepted an appointment as an assistant minister of education. And it was in that position then that uh, she, she was in that position when the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government in October of 1917, and suddenly she becomes a political enemy. That for me was one of the most dramatic parts of the book because you describe a period of considerable danger for her. And it's remarkable to think about how well she was able to, uh, you know, 
maintain her existence, shall we say, you know, basically to survive this period at, at a time where, and, and granted, uh, we're, we're sort of projecting ahead into history here, but we're, we're, we're literally uh, thousands upon thousands of opponents of the Bolsheviks will end up getting killed. What do they go after her for and how does she survive? She, uh, she displayed extraordinary courage during the entire year of, of the revolution. And and the three years of civil war that followed, I, 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 I found myself really trying to figure out how she maintained her her poise and her her presence of mind in some very dangerous situations that she uh, plunged herself into. She could have left the country entirely, as so many other aristocrats did in late 1917, 1918, but she stayed. And uh, for a month, as I, as I described, she was a leader of the underground anti-Bolshevik resistance. She was arrested. And the Bolsheviks, for reasons that uh, I've uh, tried to explain, chose her as their first uh, defendant in their uh, p- first political trial. They had dozens and dozens of probably better enemies of the people to put on trial, but they decided to try out their new system of revolutionary justice with her. So certainly one of the most dramatic moments, and the perhaps in the West, what she was best known for was her public trial in December of 1917. And I don't know if your listeners remember, or uh, or maybe they're too young to remember the movie Reds with Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton playing uh, John Reed and Louise Bryant, the famous socialist journalists who were in Russia in the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution. And, and they attended her trial, Sophia Panina's trial, and, and wrote about it rather uh, inaccurately, shall we say, <laughs> uh, afterward. So she, uh, she spent a period of time in prison. Uh, she then uh, spent the rest of uh, the, the next two and a half years in Russia, uh, supporting the anti-Bolshevik white cause down in the south of Russia. And and she did not leave Russia until March of 19, 1920, as the Bolsheviks were really bombing the port that she left from in uh, Novorossiysk on the Black Sea. So she stayed until the very bitter end and then spent the rest of her long life as an emigre, uh, along with hundreds of thousands of her fellow countrymen and countrywomen who fled the Russian Revolution. There is one in particular that plays a very large role in the stage of her life, and that's uh, Nikolai uh, Astrov. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit about uh, him and their life together, uh, both during that period of the Civil War and, and in exile. This is a a question that I I did my darndest to to answer over the course of my research, but 
both uh, Sofia Panina and Nikolai Ostrov were intensely private people, and she destroyed all of their correspondence, as far as I can tell. So I really have very little direct evidence from them of what their relationship was. He was, as I say in, in my book, a something of a graphomaniac. She offered, uh, she wrote, uh, that is to say, she left very few uh, autobiographical sources. I think she did a lot of editing and burning when she left her papers to to Columbia before her death in 1956. But I think from her side, this was the love of her life. From his side, he, he was a, a, a more complex, a moodier, uh, I, I think more difficult person. She was a woman of great uh, charm and warmth and very outgoing. And he, he bore tragedy quite, quite heavily. They were considered in the Russian emigre community as husband and wife, but they never married. And uh, the reasons for that I speculate on in, in the book. Uh, and she never recovered really from his death in 1934. And yet she lives for another two decades. And you described those. It was, it was fascinating. Some of those associations. She helps uh, Tolstoy's daughter write a biography. She is traveling portions of the world. She has this very uh, dramatic uh, life at a time where you know, it would have been so easy for her to spend it, you know, kind of wallowing in, 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 in mulling over what she had lost. And instead, she continues to live on. I, I, this was the theme in her life that I found most compelling as I was working on this project, and that is her capacity for self-reinvention, the, both involuntarily and voluntarily. She changed the course of her life several times, involuntarily as a result of, of war and civil war and revolution. And also voluntarily, as she as she became older and and discerned a different mission in her life than what her birth and heritage had had laid out for her, and it's that resilience and that courage that really I find most compelling about her. And through her life, we see how large events, as she once said, large events are, are reflected in the lives of little people. But she was a maker of those events as well as, as, a, as an object of them. And I don't want to uh, completely uh, ignore the fact that she had some of the prejudices of her class and her upbringing, but on the whole, she is really an inspiring person to read about. I think her life presents a very different side of Russia than we in the West, we in the United States are really familiar with. Do you find that is part of her resonance for us today? I mean, what does she 
basically have for us in terms of our understanding of Russia and our understanding of of, of Russia's past? I think one uh, one way that she really resonates is the uh, the ways her life uh, mapped the emergence of a strong civil society in Russia before World War One. In effect, she helps us understand the alternative paths that Russian history might have taken, that all was not decided uh, inevitably that the, that Russia would, would erupt in violent revolution at the end of 1917. So I think for, for us, it, it's even larger than that. Really, her, her story is a story of the contingency of history, too. And also, as I talk about in the introduction of my book, the way her life and her her impact were recovered after the collapse of the Soviet Union and became uh, symbols of this alternative course of Russian history, a more democratic course. Uh, and and so I, I first encountered this group of people in St. Petersburg in 1991 who were busy resurrecting her legacy and her her memory and 20 years later there are two major conferences uh, on the topic of her life and her her impact so it's really really interesting to see how her life is being reinterpreted in Russia today or at least was being reinterpreted in the years right after the collapse of the USSR. I think it's also an extraordinary story of a woman and her self-reinvention. And that's always important and interesting. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I am still interested in the subject of the ways women participated in the Russian Revolution and 1917. So I am busy uh, co-editing a book with a, a friend and colleague on gender and women in Russia's uh, World War I and Civil War. And I'm also thinking about maybe possibly doing, uh, launching another biographical project, although this one I did not expect would take me so long. <laughs> so, but I found doing biography enormously satisfying, great fun. I loved the research for this project. I loved writing this book. And so maybe I'll I'll do I'll do something like it uh, in a little while. Right now I'm. The book just came out a month ago, so I'm interested in getting it into the hands of people who who will appreciate and understand the life of Sofia Panina and the alternative courses that history can take. I, I do hope that uh, it gets into many hands because it really is a remarkable story. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. Well, 
Uh, Adele, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. And the same to you, Mark. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.